gosh. Good morning, everybody. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And today I want to tell you about one of the first mistakes that I made as the pastor of this church. Uh, our church started in kind of late 2009. We had some preview services and then kind of grand opening in January of, uh, or late 2008, early 2009, we had our grand opening. And uh, we decided to have our preview service on October 26th. And uh, that was, you know, plenty of time for my wife who was pregnant to have our second baby, or so we thought, right? Everyone told us, hey, the second baby comes quick. You know, the second baby comes early. Well, our second baby came about six days late and was born the night before our very first preview service. But that's not the mistake I want to tell you about. I also don't want to tell you about the mistake on that same day when we accidentally ordered a hundred dozen donuts. We meant to order a hundred donuts, and we ordered, actually it was their mistake, but a hundred dozen donuts. Everyone got to take one home, a whole box. It was great. Uh, the other mistake I'm not going to tell you about was preaching John 17, John 17, verse 3. This was the verse that I preached on that very first preview service Sunday. Jesus prays this in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a pretty good verse to preach on a first day, isn't it? What's eternal life? That they would know you, that they would know God. That's what that's what we preached about, and I'm sure it wasn't a very good sermon, because your first 200 sermons as a preacher are just lousy, and that was my first one, so, so it was fine, probably. But here's the mistake that I want to tell you about. The mistake was preaching that verse at the very first preview service of our church, and not somehow connecting it to the uniqueness of what that moment was. So I preached John 17, 3 as if I were preaching it as just a standalone message anywhere. I could have preached it at another church. I could have preached it at our church. I could have preached it at Grand Canyon University. I could have preached it at a chapel service at a Christian school somewhere. I could have preached it anywhere the way I preached it. And actually, one of my friends, after the service, I was so excited. He said, tell me, what did you think about the sermon? How was it? He said, yeah, it was, it was fine. But like, why didn't you tie it into like, this is the very first service of the church? And this is what we're going to be about. Like, you didn't do that very well. And I don't want to make that mistake today. And today is a special day in the life of our church. Today is the day that we're officially celebrating breaking ground on our property that we own next door. Yeah, we can celebrate that. And, uh, and I'd love it if you all would come back this afternoon if you have some time and you can join us at 3.30 uh, wear some dirty shoes, wear clothes that are comfortable, wear sunglasses and a hat and sunscreen. We'll be out there for about 20 or 30 minutes and just spend some time praying over that land, give you a chance to walk across the land and collect dirt and pray and celebrate with us. This is a special day in the life of our church. And I think it would be a mistake to just preach Ephesians 1, 15 to 19 just by itself without connecting it to the reality of what we as a people the local congregation of Redemption Church Gateway are celebrating today. So before we do that, I feel like some history might be helpful because not everybody has been with us for this nine-plus-year journey of our church. As I said, our grand opening was in 2009, and we started over at Arizona State Polytechnic. And a little ballroom there, which we thought, man, we could just be in here forever. Well, we were in there for about three months. Uh, we outgrew it pretty quickly, and they pretty quickly realized, wow, there are more people here coming than we thought when they asked us. 
and we don't know if we want to, you know, be quite connected to a church or whatever, and so we decided we needed to move. And at that point, the only place that really was open on a Sunday morning in terms of schools was Perry High School. Well, if you know ASU Poly, you go to Perry, that's quite a bit further west. Some of you joined us in those days, and we were there for about two years, meeting there in the auditorium as Second Mile Church. Maybe you don't even know that, that when our church started, we were called Second Mile the whole idea that Jesus said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. And so that's how our church was started at ASU Poly, and then a couple years there at, uh, at Perry High School. And that's kind of around the time that we started to realize, you know what, we, we don't want to be in this school forever. And we launched our first resource initiative. We called it Beyond. Beyond. Here's the logo of that. And that's the resource initiative that a lot of people gave to so that we could move into this space that we're in here right now. And it was based on Ephesians Three, if you have your Bible, you can flip over to that. Ephesians 3.20, which says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's what this was based off of, is God is a God who goes beyond. God is a God who blesses us beyond what we could ask or think. And that's kind of what rallied us to be able to give. And people gave generously and sacrificially so that we could move into this building, which we moved into then in early 2011. And here's kind of a picture from a prayer service that we had before we laid carpet. Uh, We had a prayer service. We just had the construction lights going there. And everybody got markers. And we wrote names of people that we wanted to see come to faith. Some of you have come to faith and you're worshiping in this room here today. We wrote prayers. We wrote scripture. And we dedicated this building to the worship of Jesus, and we've been here since then. And in 2014, we started to realize, okay, we're here, and we have a lease, and that's good that we have a lease, and it's good that we have a full-time space, but what happens when the lease runs out? And wouldn't it be great if we could really put some roots down somewhere? And so we began a new initiative called Roots in 2014, where we talked about how, you know, when we buy this land, once it's paid for, it'll look just like it looks now, (laughs) dirt, right? And you'll go out there today if you come back, and it's going to look exactly like it looked before we bought it. Actually, there's a little more parking space on it now. We've, you know, some folks have laid some gravel, and there's a place where we had a bonfire a couple weeks ago with the students. But other than that, it's just dirt. And people gave a million dollars for dirt. And they prayed. And they invested. Why? Because we said during that series, this is something that will matter 100 years from now. Most things we do don't have the impact like that, but we could actually give to a project that would make it where a church could own this property, and generations after us, 100 years from now, this could still be a gospel outpost for Jesus Christ. There you see a picture of what our land looks like. And after that land was paid for, we realized, okay, now we have the opportunity to build something on it. And so in 2016, we launched an initiative called Home Away From Home. Home Away From Home was based off of John 14, where Jesus says that he was going to prepare a place for us, a a home for us. The idea that, that there is an eternal home called the kingdom of God, and the church gets to be a taste of it. We talked about it last week. We're the pink spoon people. There's this great ice cream called the kingdom of God, and we get to be the preview. We get to be the taste. We get to be the home away from our eternal home. We also talked about how so many people in the valley aren't from here and how the church becomes a kind of family, a kind of home that can supplant and supply where, you know, 
extended family maybe can't be here. And then today, here we are, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, as we prepare to break ground on these incredible buildings. This is maybe what it'll look like in 2019. And... Uh, you see it's going to be a big, beautiful, incredible space. It's amazing. When you drive by it, it looks tiny. And when you walk out on that land, you're like, there's a lot of land here. And it's going to be an incredible space. And so as we prepare to break ground on that, as we celebrate just what God is doing, I, I want to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 19. What should we be praying for? What should we be praying for as we look back at what God did? What should we be praying for as we look ahead to what God will do, what should our prayer be? It should be Ephesians 1, 15 to 19. And in fact, here's the thing about this particular passage. I think this is a passage that we could pray forever. Think about this for a moment. There are some prayers you can't pray in heaven, like God forgive me for my sins, because you won't have any sins. There are some prayers you can't pray in heaven. You can't say, Lord, would you grant salvation to this person who doesn't know you because they'll know you, right? And I'm talking about the, the end of history, heaven. But this is a prayer we'll be able to pray forever. And this is absolutely a prayer that I want us to be praying today as we celebrate this special groundbreaking moment. So I want to I pray through it and teach through it and uh, rejoice in it with us together. So let me pray. And we'll dive into the scripture. Father, thank you for the faith and the love that your people have shown. (coughs) And now, God, I pray that you, the Father of glory, would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ. Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know the hope to which you've called us? that we would know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might. God, give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation even now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There's kind of three big headings of this prayer that we see, three big things that Paul prays for along the way. The first one is this, God, thank you for faithful, loving people. Look at verse 15. It says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, the Apostle Paul had spent an extended amount of time in Ephesus. He'd spent almost two years there and then left, and he's now writing some years later. And so he has some firsthand experience of the Ephesians and what they were like. But now word has also traveled to him. Do you see that in verse 15? He says, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. I've heard about your love toward all the saints. Paul's encouraged. What I love about this whole prayer is Paul does not say, you know what? I've heard that you guys stink. I've heard how disobedient you are. I've heard how mean you are. I've heard how selfish you are. And I'm praying that God would open your dumb eyes to see the truth, right? He's not praying like that. He says, you know what? I have heard, I've heard, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. I saw it firsthand, but I've also heard it. You have a faith that has spread. And, and, and I'll tell you what, 
as a pastor of this church, one of the things that I get to hear a lot is about your faith and your love. People often come and they say, hey, I hear God's doing great things at Gateway. And if I get to push into that at all, what it is is they've talked to somebody who goes to Gateway. They've gotten to know them. We experienced this a bunch last week as we hosted the ITN conference, the International Turkey Network, where 100 or so people from around the world were here, staying in your homes, uh, experiencing the hospitality as you made coffee and as you welcomed and as you handed out lunches and as we did all those things. And they said, this is an amazing church. And you know what? They weren't here for a worship service. They never heard me preach. You know what they saw? The faith and the love of all the saints here at Redemption Gateway. And that's what our church has been about. I was going back through a list, actually, of our launch team. We had about 50 adults that were part of our launch team when we prepared to launch Second Mile Church. And these were people who we said, hey, if you want to be part of this, we're not just asking you to show up on the first day. We're asking you to commit to five things. We're asking you to commit to go to your friends, to your circle of influence, and share the love of Christ with them. We're asking you to come when we have services and when we have events. Would you come and be a regular part of that? We're asking you to invite people that you're going to to join us in those events and in those services. We're asking you to serve because we don't just, like, we need stuff done. you got to have, a, have an agreement. Hey, when we get going, we're going to serve here, and we want you to give. We want you to give now before the church even exists. We want you to start giving financially. That was the commitment that those people made. And here's what I'll tell you, because I do a lot of coaching of church planners and meeting with church planners. Most church plant launch teams in a church plant, most of the people that are part of that launch team are not part of the church within two years. And that's not always a bad thing. I mean, sometimes that's like, you go, oh, that sounds bad. Well, sometimes it's just you have kind of starter-up type people who want to be part of it, and they want to get it off the ground, and then they want to go do it again. And sometimes it's God moves people around, and sometimes it's, you know, kind of the bad stuff where they had this perfect idea of what a church would be, and this one isn't it, and so I guess I'll go try to find it somewhere else. And guess what? That one ain't it either, right? And it just keeps going. But it's very rare for many people from a launch team to be part of a church two years later. I went back through the list of our launch team. Do you know that there are 29 people who were part of that launch team that are still part of our church today? That's almost 60%. And and that is a testimony to their faith and their love. These were people who gathered in a room with a 28-year-old who said, let's start a new church. And they thought, that's a good idea. I mean, that's faith, right? Right? And, and wow, what God has done through them. I think about the faith and the love of people. I think about how in the early days we didn't have a student ministry. I mean, we have this thriving, booming, growing, can't fit any more people in the room student ministry. You know what our plan for a student ministry was when we started? We didn't have one. People would come and go, what is your plan for students? Well, someday, that was our plan, someday. Well, someday happened when Eloy Garza said, you know what, I'll, I'll step up and I'll get together a group of kids and I'll... I'll start a student ministry. Think about the faith and the love that people like Rick and Linda Hankins and Shad and Kate Hanselman and Alex and Atelka Hendrickson and Todd and Donna Johnson and so many others who have been part of shaping our guest services ministry over time. Think about people like Evelyn Gray. I don't know if you know Evelyn. She was baptized here at this church, and if the doors are open, she's probably here watching your kids. She's a volunteer just serving tirelessly. 
Think about Tim and Barb Campbell. They drove about 30 minutes each way at the beginning. Right? A lot of people joined the church because it was close to their house. They actually came from further away because they wanted to be part of it. And as they've shaped our missions and shaped our community and global ministry, it's incredible. I think about people like Peggy Gilbertson. You know, we celebrate communion every week. There's two reasons we get to celebrate communion every week. One is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and the second is because Peggy Gilbertson. <laughs> Peggy Gilbertson has led a team that makes sure that we have all these appropriate matzah crackers and grape juice, and, and she organizes this whole system and things that you and I would never, ever think about, and yet she does it silently, quietly. Why? Because of her faith, because of her love. For all the saints. Today's actually the last day that Peggy's going to be part of our church family. She's headed up to Washington to be near her kids and grandkids. But it's lots of investments from people like that. I think about Robin Howie who said, you know what, I have this passion for quilting. Maybe we could develop a, a ministry of people who could make quilts of, and, and fill them, fill these quilts with scripture references and pray over them so that we could send them to homebound people or people who are sick. I just visited a man in hospice the other day who literally every night sleeps on the word of God because in his room is one of these quilts. It's the faith in God. It's the love for his people. I think about Blake Stockton who just finds you. <laughs> if you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you need something, he sniffs it out and he comes and he <laughs> puts a big, strong carpenter hand on your shoulder. I'll never forget the day that I was backstage before the service. I, I looked out, and Blake and Joni were standing right here with their hands on the stage. And they were praying for me. That's the work of God. And, and I just happened to see it. They weren't doing it to be seen. They were doing it because of a faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints. I think about EJ and Stephanie Cockrum who have built almost all the different sets we've used. And anytime there's a special event or VBS, they work tirelessly. Think about Tina Brown, who said, you know what? My life was impacted when I was a young adult. Could I help start a small group of, of ministry for young adults? Think about Thomas Bates, who just does everything around here. If you've ever gotten on Wi-Fi, you have to thank Thomas Bates. If there's a light that works or anything that happens here, it's Thomas Bates. I think about mentors. I think about student ministry mentors who last year... The students that they started mentoring in sixth grade graduated from high school, and they walked with them through that whole seven-year stretch. One of them, I talked to a, a, a kid or a, a dad of a, of a student who was in that group, and I said, hey, how'd it go? You sent your kid off to college today, and he said it was amazing. Joe Heller showed up at the airport to send him off. Listen, what makes this church amazing is your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And so as we look ahead into the future, 
We have to look back with gratitude and with joy and with thanksgiving. And I just mentioned a few people. We could go on and on and on. Even as I look around this room, I could just spend the whole rest of the sermon just talking about you. I've got to move on. But this is, this is what makes this church special. Faithful, loving plotters. Here's a quote that I've read to you a bunch of times because it so captures the vision that I have for us as a people. It's by Kevin DeYoung. He says this. He says, in the church, what we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. That's my dream for the church, a multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plotting consistency. Until we are content with being one of the million nameless, faceless church members and not the next globe-trotting rock star, we aren't ready to be part of the church. In the grand scheme of things, most of us are going to be more of an ampliatus or a phlegon than Apostle Paul. You're like, I've never heard of them. Exactly. (laughs) But in all the smallness and sameness, God works like the smallest seed in the growing garden growing to unbelievable heights. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same direction. That's this church. And I thank God for you, for your plodding, steady faithfulness of hundreds of you that will serve today in lots of ways, and nobody might even notice, but they would notice if you weren't here, and I just want to tell you, I notice, and thank you, and thank God for you. Here's the second part of the prayer that we see in verses 17 and 18, is God, open the eyes of our hearts to know you even better. Yes, God, thank you for the past. Yes, God, thank you for the faith and the love of your saints. But God, open the eyes of our hearts to know you even better. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. But in verses 17 and 18, he says, listen, here's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that you'd have wisdom and revelation, that your eyes would be enlightened so that you would know God. Here's the incredible thing. Paul does not say, pray, God bless me. Why Why does he do that? Well, because he already said in the first part of Ephesians, what we just spent the last seven weeks looking at, you have been blessed. You have been blessed. So you have been blessed. So now Paul says, God, would you open their eyes to see it? Would you help them know how blessed they've been? God, your blessings surround them, and they just might not see it. So God, would you open their eyes that they could see your blessing so that they could know you even better? There's this incredible place in the Old Testament where the people of Israel and the people of Syria are fighting. They're getting in all these battles, and it seems like uh, Syria keeps getting beaten because God keeps giving secret knowledge to Elisha, the prophet. He tells, hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's where there's going to be, and Israel keeps beating them. 
Well, Syria gets kind of fed up with this, and the king says, all right, I want you to go, and I want you to surround Elisha because he's kind of the big problem. He keeps giving away our territory, giving away our position. we got to surround him with an army. So go surround him. And so uh, in, in they, they do this at night, and in the morning, Elisha's servant gets up and sees that they're surrounded by the Syrian army. And he comes to Elisha in a panic. What are we going to do, Elisha? Oh, my gosh, they're surrounding us. And Elisha says, God... Open his eyes. And the servant of Elisha's eyes are open, and he's able to see that surrounding the army that's surrounding them is an angel army. Where he's able to see the reality that God is surrounding them, that God is for them. Do you see? Do you see the blessings? From Ephesians 1, that you're chosen, that you're adopted, that you're redeemed, that you're part of this heaven on earth people, that you're sealed with the Spirit. Paul says, I want you to pray that you'd see it. Listen, be thankful for what God has given you, absolutely, but don't be just content with that. Do you get this? Listen, I think sometimes we think if we're asking God for more, God, give me more insight. Give me more knowledge of you. If we, if we do that, we think that somehow we're, we're poo-pooing what he's given us. No, no, no. Paul's whole approach here is saying, look at what he's given you. I want you to know God even more. That's the whole idea. I love Psalm 116. There it says this. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Here's the question. What should I give to God? God, you've given me so much. God, you've blessed me so abundantly. What should I do for God in light of how God's given me this? And do you see the answer? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Here's here's what it is. He's looking at this full cup that he has. He says, "What, God, how am I going to pay you back for all the goodness you've given me? And you know what he realizes? I hope he realizes what you realize. You can't. You can't pay God back. Are you kidding? What can you do? What's going to honor God the most? What's going to honor God the most is you lift up the cup and you say, do it again. This is what I love about, you know, about little kids. Right? You do something that amazes them and they just never get sick of it. Do it again, daddy. Do it again, daddy. Do it again, daddy. Do it again, daddy. Forever. <laughs> Listen, that's, that's how God wants us to be to him. Yes, I've blessed you. Yes, you know me. But ask for more. Ask for more. Get even more. All right, I, I think about a balloon. Got a balloon here. Here goes nothing. God's blessed you. Hasn't he? Your life is full of the blessings of God, election and adoption and redemption and forgiveness and, and sealing with the Spirit. You're, as, you're full, right? This balloon's full. Like There's not any empty, not full part of it. But the prayer that Paul's asking here is this. Fill it up more. Fill it up more. I'm getting nervous because. <laughs> but here's the thing this can pop, and it might, so look out, Mark. This can pop. Oh, man. 
I'll just have to hold that for a little bit. But the blessings of God, think about this, forever. Psalm 116.11 says, there you go. In your presence is fullness of joy. Don't, don't, don't hit it around more. <laughs> just catch it. It's not a D-backs game. No. You're good, Jan. The blessings of God, it gets ever bigger. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, which means your capacity for enjoying God will just get bigger forever. Think about that. Right? Sometimes people go, oh, I can't wait to go to heaven, and then I'll know God fully. You might be able to know God as fully as you can currently know him, but your capacity to know God forever is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is why Paul prays, God, open their eyes, open their hearts, help them to know, help them to know you, to grow closer to you forever. Listen, God has given our church so much. If it ended today, we'd be thankful. But I want more. I want more of God. I want more of his joy. I want more people who are committed to willing self-sacrifice for the good of people who can't repay them. I want more of that, don't you? Isn't that what you want to be part of in a church? Not just a church that puts on a good Sunday show, but a group of people who know God. Amen? Well, what would it look like to have more of God? What would it look like for that balloon to get bigger and bigger? Well, Paul tells us in verses 18 and 19, Here's the third part of the prayer. God, help us to know our hope, our place in your heart, and your power. If we're going to know God even better, there's three things that he tells us we're going to know. First, God, help us to know our hope. Look at what it says there in the middle of verse 18. Have the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. To know God better would be to be more convinced of our future hope, more convinced that our home is the new heavens and new earth with God. We talked about it in verse 10. Look Jack, down to chapter 1, verse 10. Here's the God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are the pink spoon people. We are the home away from home. And, and so we would pray, God, help us to be more convinced of our hope, more convinced of the calling that we have. Listen, we get so discouraged because we think our hope's here. We think our hope is in the circumstances of our job or in the relationships in our family or in the, in the temporary here and now. Our hope is the eternal reality of God making all things new. And that doesn't mean that the circumstances don't hurt and the family isn't difficult, but it's that God's hope and God's power transcends it. Pray that we would know that, that we would be convinced of that. If we're not convinced of that, we will just kind of want to escape the world. We won't in any way want to be part of helping other people experience that hope. So we need to be more convinced of our hope, but God, also help us to know our place in your heart. Look at what it says at the end of verse 18. It says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now here's what's interesting. In the first part of Ephesians 1, 
you get the idea that God is our inheritance. What's the joy of heaven? It's God. But look at the phrasing of this particular verse. Look at it. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Whoa, 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 wait, what? Yeah, Paul says, I want you to know about God's inheritance. You go, what's God's inheritance? We'll keep reading. What is the immeasurable great, or I'm sorry, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Get this. We are God's inheritance. And God is ours. Think about this. What is our place in God's heart? See, see get this, because some of you, you think of God as mostly a taskmaster who's disappointed in you. Because you haven't done this well, you haven't done that well. And if you're just a little more committed, and if you're just a little more faithful, and if you're just a little bit loving, if I said, hey, God, God's uh, invited you into his office, he'd like to see you, you imagine that God's face would be like, Whew. you. Some of you, if you're honest, that's how you think God thinks of you, right? Can I give you a different picture? Went to college. I'm from Denver. Went to college at University of Illinois. And every Christmas, I would come home for Christmas. And I'd come home. And my bedroom was vacuumed. My bed was made. My parents, who at that point were empty nesters, had filled the pantry. I'd come home and ribeye steaks would be on the grill because, gosh, our boy's home. Listen, you are God's inheritance. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that's what he's saying. Steaks are on the grill. You're coming home. This is the image of the parable of the prodigal son. The son who's gone out and he's wrecked his life and he's done everything to say, God I, or Father, I wish you were dead. I don't want you. I just want my inheritance now. And, and he goes off and he totally denies his father, just like we've totally denied God, just like we've totally rebelled against God. And yet God so loves us that he allows his son to die in our place so that he can run out to meet us and slaughter the fattened calf so we can celebrate. We are God's inheritance. Are you convinced of that? See, until you're convinced of that, you don't know God very well. So Paul prays, oh, Lord, help them to know you. Help them to know of the future hope they have. Help them to know that they are your inheritance. Your inheritance, Father, is in the saints. And here's the last thing, is more convinced of God's power. God, help us to know our hope, our place in your heart, and your power. The word power some form of it is used actually four different times in verse 19. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? All four of those words, greatness, power, great, might, are four different Greek words to talk about God's power. 
Now, this would be significant because the Ephesians were obsessed with power. We're actually going to talk about this more next week. We'll go into this next week, that the Ephesians were obsessed with power. They were in the metropolis of magic there in Ephesus, where Artemis had this huge shrine built to her. You may recall, if you were with us last year, we taught through Acts 19, and when all these people came to faith, they started burning their magic books that were totaled up and were lots and lots of money. They were obsessed with power. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to be convinced of God's power. God's power is immeasurably greater than the powers that were in those magic books. God's power is great. His power is mighty. Now, here's the thing. We're not kind of into that magic, cultish, superstitious stuff quite as much. Some areas of our culture are. But we're just as obsessed with power. Do you know where we think power lies? Human ingenuity. Oh, you know what? There's a problem. Science and technology to the rescue. Oh, there's this mental illness, mass shooting thing, legislation to the rescue. We'll come up with a human plan. This is a human problem. We don't need God. There's not really a God in the world. We, you know, there's these human problems, and we could just get more sophisticated than we could solve them. And in fact, in Paul's thinking, as you'll see next week, there are powers and rulers and demonic forces in the world that make it where we do not just live in a human reality. We live in a supernatural reality, a spiritual reality, and there is a God who's over it. And here's the thing, even the church can get sucked into that. Here's what Francis Schaeffer said. He said, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, communism, rationalism, consumerism, sensualism. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Our biggest temptation has been and will continue to be individually and collectively doing the Lord's work in our power, especially once we get pretty good at it. May it never be. May this be a church committed to the immeasurable greatness of his power. Listen, today as we break ground, my heart is full. It's been kind of an emotional week, you can tell. But I want more of God. This is not a finish line. This is the beginning. This is the starting blocks of God. Help us to know you better. I want more God for my life, for my family, for this church, for our community, and I want it forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the saints that you've called to yourself and their faith and their love. Thank you that you've invited us to know you personally. God, I pray that we would. And God, as we do, I pray that our hope would deepen, our confidence in your affection for us would strengthen. And God, I pray that our trust and reliance on your power 
would be what keeps us going so that you would receive the glory and the honor and the praise in this room, in the buildings that will be built next door, in the homes and the offices and the gyms and everywhere else that we scatter all week so that you would receive the glory and praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.